0: Well, it was a harmless mistake, or so you would think. Both substances are beneficial to human life. Both can be ingested with no adverse effects. Both substances readily available and commonly consumed. Identical in appearance. No one would have ever considered the substitution to be so emotionally devastating or physically destructive, yet it was. In fact, it had the Binghamton General Hospital staff reeling a few decades ago. Babies started dying and people started panicking. No one knew why or how, but in a relatively small amount of time, the joyful atmosphere of Binghamton's maternity ward was transformed into a cold, lifeless morgue as several newborn infants suddenly died of unknown causes. It must have been sheer bedlam as the doctors and nurses scrambled in an effort to determine what could have caused this tragedy in order to prevent any further deaths. Eventually, they discovered what caused this awful, senseless, and unnecessary catastrophe. When mixing the baby's formula, someone in that ward had inadvertently substituted salt for sugar. And although the resulting mixture looked the same, the outcome was radically different. I tell you that story, that true story, because I want to make this point very clear counterfeits can be deadly they may appear to be harmless they may even look beneficial but in the end the result is destructive similar thing happened some years ago when a handful of people if you recall went to their medicine cabinets to find relief for a headache and unknowingly swallowed Tylenol that was laced with poison you remember that See, sometimes what you don't know will hurt you. That's true not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm as well. Since the day the gospel began to be preached, people have been messing with the ingredients. Spiritual sabotage. Tainting of truth. Sinister substitutions that sound similar and look like the real thing. And it happens today just as it did in the Apostle Paul's day. Other gospels that constantly go undetected as fakes are being peddled from door to door, from church to church, and unfortunately when embraced by well-meaning, truth-seeking people don't bring relief or sustain life, but instead they result in spiritual death. Let me ask you a question, are you aware of them? Do you tolerate them? Do they bother you at all? We've grown so used to them and so inundated by the political and cultural lies regarding tolerance that even in the Christian church there is a hands-off policy in calling these perpetrators on the carpet. I'm constantly amazed by the junk that is propagated not just by secular society, but by the so-called Christian counterculture and I use the term loosely navigate any online Christian bookstore and you can lay your hands on a preponderance of literature that doesn't even come close to qualifying as Christian writers who deny the fundamentals of the faith and clearly contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ are on the bestseller lists turn on cable satellite TV There's only one thing, by the way, that disgusts me more than racy videos and reality shows on MTV, the plethora of garbage on the Christian network. In my opinion, a large percentage of it is junk. At least you pretty much know what you're getting on MTV, blatant sin. But when preachers with plastic hair and plastered smiles use the message of salvation for money, popularity and personal egos, we're dealing with a false front. It's still sin all right, but it's whitewashed. Listen to the radio, various podcasts, peruse a few YouTube videos, And in one offering, you will hear a solid Bible teacher who teaches sound doctrine and relevant application, immediately followed by a guy who calls people foul names all under the guise of Christianity. In one segment, you may hear sound practical biblical counsel, and in the next, be confused by a program laced with unintelligible language and demonic-sounding laughter. What is the standard of measure? Where's the discernment? Now, I agree with a statement I once read by a prominent preacher whom I believe is biblically sound. He said this, quote, The most destructive dangers to the church have never been atheism, pagan religions, or cults that openly deny Scripture, but rather supposedly Christian movements that accept so much biblical truth that their unscriptural doctrines seem relatively insignificant and harmless. But a single drop of poison in a large container Can make all the water lethal. And a single false idea that undercuts God's grace poisons the whole system of belief. The Apostle Paul had something to say about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 1 to 4. Paul defends his apostleship and he says these words, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to only one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul speaking sarcastically here to the Corinthians. My friends, please listen carefully to what I'm saying. There are those who will always be substituting salt for sugar in the spiritual formula and if you persist in drinking it, it will, in fact, poison you. And eventually it will kill you. That's the message I want to get across today. I'm not soft-pedaling anything this morning. You probably already got that impression. But it's the message Paul wanted to get across to the Galatian church. Around 50 A.D., he met with the same exact scenario that we encounter today. Not a lot's changed. As Paul went around preaching salvation by grace through faith, right on his heels would be another teacher using the same Christian terminology of grace, but laced with a little something else. Law. And it was very convincing. It was also poison. The Galatians needed to know how poisonous it was, and my friends, so do we because it's all over the place in Christendom. When the gospel is distorted, grace is destroyed. And when grace is destroyed, the hope of salvation is lost. Look at Galatians chapter 1, if you would with me. And this is where we're going to camp out this morning. Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1, but we're really going to be focused in on verses 6 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. These are serious words that Paul opens his letter to the Galatians with, aren't they? He does not beat around the bush. He's right out of the chute with it. Now, in the wake of a year of social isolation and public gathering restrictions, when practically every teacher, preacher, and church has gone virtual, has gone digital, and the floodgates for the propagation of the false gospel have been pushed wide open, that, my brothers and sisters, is a message that we desperately need to understand as a church what I just read to you out of these first 10 verses. As one man put it, grace can be destroyed, but it cannot be modified. It can be rejected, but it cannot be changed. Now, if there's one thing that this church must be committed to, this church, I'm talking about our church, is the unchangeable word of truth. I have held that as my high priority from the onset of my call to the ministry here and with God's help, I will hold it until the day that I leave. Years from now, I want to be able to look back at Fayette Baptist Church, look at Fayette Baptist Church, as long as the Lord keeps me alive, and be able to say, as the Apostle said in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Because Satan's first concern here is to undermine the core of the gospel, which is salvation by grace. If he can confuse that issue, he can control people and he can keep them from coming to Christ. He can also deceive those who have already come to him by grace by tempting them to think that they need something more in order to ensure it. That they must work to keep it. And he tries to get people to defect from the truth of grace to the practice of law. And that defection happens, my friends, all the time. Legalism is one of Satan's best and most damaging tools. It always has been. And like Paul... The first thing I want you to see here in this text is that we ought to be agitated. And if you can't guess, I'm a little agitated. We ought to be agitated by the defection that is caused by legalism. That's in verses 6 and 7. Look, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Now usually Paul opens his letters with some sort of praise or commendation to the people that he's writing to, right? Not here. Here, it is an attitude of abrupt astonishment at their fickle nature. He's agitated. He's amazed and astonished at what is taking place. If if he were here, I think his tone would be one of outward shock. I think he'd respond like Vizzini in the movie The Princess Bride, who when the hero Wesley triumphed over his every foil, his repeated response was the terse, inconceivable, right? That's Paul's response here. This is inconceivable, you Galatians. I can't believe how fast you're considering defecting to another gospel. And they were responding with lightning speed. It's amazing to me how fast people, even in the church, can begin to defect from the true gospel to a different one. Very fast. One tragic example that we cannot erase from our memories is the branch Davidian cult led by David Koresh, members of which needlessly perished in a hellish firestorm. Now I have read that the majority of them were from mainline denominations wooed to a cult by a cleverly spun different gospel. These Galatian believers seemingly offered little resistance to the false teachers who came in on Paul's heels and they were voluntarily defecting. The term Paul uses here in verse 6 is for, for deserting here is a very strong one. The word deserting in the New American Standard Bible means to transfer one's allegiance from one thing to another. They actually were jumping ship. It was used in Paul's time to describe a revolt, an act of political or military defection. Now, whether it was used in the context of philosophy or morals or religion, the word actually referred to someone who was a turncoat. You can understand that term, right? The King James Version seems to suggest that they were passively being removed to another expression of Christian faith, which was partially valid, but tainted with error. The fact is, though, in the real sense of the word, they were actively deserting the true gospel, not for one that was partially valid, but for one that was a total lie. And I need to say this. There is no such thing is a partially valid gospel. There's no such thing. It is either true or it is false. Amen. Period. There's no, no matter how close it comes to the real thing, if there is one minute detail added to the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, and that there is something a person has to do in order to warrant salvation, then it is a completely false gospel. I can't say that and stress that enough. That's exactly how Satan works. He weaves just enough truth around a lie to make it seem believable, but a partial truth is always a whole lie. In his brilliant satire, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis Imagine this dispatch from the demon Screwtape to his apprentice, Wormwood, who was trying desperately to keep his human patient from practicing biblical Christianity. Anybody read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, I would highly suggest reading it. This is what Screwtape says to his apprentice. My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and physical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. You see how ridiculous this gets, right? This is is C.S. Lewis now, a brilliant mind. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring, unquote. That's what Satan does. He wants to add the end to Christianity. That's what the Judaizers were doing in Galatia. They were espousing the gospel of Christ, but they added the end of the Jewish law to it. And the people were buying it, hook, line, and sinker. And later, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, look at Galatians chapter 3 in the first five verses there, you foolish Galatians, Paul says, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, the Galatians were actively defecting, not just passively being removed. And there's a huge difference, right? There's a difference between losing your car keys in a crowded store and leaving them there because you don't want the car anymore. Isn't there? They hadn't misplaced their faith in the true gospel. They were actually abandoning it for another gospel. Something more exciting, perhaps. Something that seemed right. And many people do that, don't they? especially if you've grown up in a household or a religion that demands that you earn your place of acceptance. True grace is too hard to handle, so they get sucked right in into a grace plus works gospel. It seems right. And we grow up learning, don't we? We grow up learning in this world that nothing's free. You don't get a free lunch, right? Nothing comes easy. You never get something for nothing and there's no such thing as a free ride. We learned that growing up. And so a message that says salvation is a free gift of God seems just too easy, doesn't it? Too simple for some people to to believe. And so they think, well, let's just add something to it to make us feel better about our salvation. And so the infamous list of do's and don'ts begins to be drawn up. In other words, you can't be a real Christian unless you're saved by grace and. And you fill in the blank, whatever that is. It's Jesus and certain kinds of clothing. It's Jesus and certain kinds of foods. It's Jesus and a certain kind of Bible translation. It's Jesus and a certain kind of political party. Or is Jesus and the law? Or maybe it's what needs to go away, right? Jesus and no rock music. Or Jesus and no rap or retro music. Or Jesus and no playing cards. Or Jesus and no going to the movies. Or Jesus and no this, no that. And the flip side of that is equally seductive. The gospel of grace does not mean licentiousness, or that anything goes. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 addresses that very clearly. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? What does he say? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jude 3 and 4 also addresses this. The half-brother of the Lord writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. Once for all time. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into indecent behavior and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, it was even in the first century that it was happening. Both of these Gospels are man-made, legalism and licentiousness. They're both man-made, and they are lies, and they may seem right, but in the end, they are deadly. That's what Proverbs 16.25 says, doesn't it? There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Paul's painting a very serious picture to the Galatians here, not only because they were deserting the true gospel, but ultimately they were deserting God himself. Look what it says in verse 6, Galatians 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting what? Him. It's not just deserting the gospel. You're deserting God. Him who called you by the grace of Christ. The very one who called them by his grace. That's the true essence of the gospel. It is of God and it is by grace. Let me say that again. The gospel is of God and it is by grace. Any other message is a different gospel. Totally different. Qualitatively different. It's not even in the same class. In fact, as Paul says in verse 7 first part of it, which is really not another. It's not another. It's not even to be considered another gospel. The language he uses is very strong and very pointed. That's a very, very important word to understand, that word another. There is no such thing as another gospel of the same kind, and that's what that word refers to, another of the same kind. There are two Gospels, three Gospels, four Gospels, five Gospels. There's one Gospel. Any message that denies salvation by grace is not good news. It's false doctrine. Our relationship with God is a no-wage relationship. Can I say that again? You may want to write that down. Our relationship with God in salvation is a no-wage relationship. In other words, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't pay it back. What is the true gospel anyway? What is it? I'm going to give it to you really quickly here, so follow as fast as you can. Let your fingers do the walking through the Bible. Okay? Here are the facts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's the facts about the gospel. It gives it to you in the first five verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you were also saved. Mark that. If you hold fast the word to which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. You see, it's, it's the whole idea of what's written here in the first five verses. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the facts of the gospel. Here's the foundation of the gospel, though. The foundation of the gospel, you find that in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved... Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Okay? That's the foundation of the gospel. Here's the fruit of the gospel. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, it says being justified, being declared righteous, in other words, as a gift, notice that, it's a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 6, verse 23, here's the no wage part. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we got the facts, the foundation, the fruit. Now here's the freedom. The freedom of the gospel is in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and beginning, well, verse 16, says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, underline that, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Get that? The gospel is one message. Any system of salvation that adds or subtracts from that message is counterfeit. And apparently the Judaizers here were teaching things that corresponded to the true gospel, but went beyond it. They taught that to maintain right standing with God, the Old Testament law must be followed as if Moses had to finish what Christ started. It doesn't even make sense, does it? That mere addition nullifies the gospel of grace and cuts it off at the knees. That's what legalism does. It's exactly what legalism does. As one man wrote, it doesn't moderately pollute grace, but it reverses it and it destroys it. Now, don't misunderstand, however. Legalism is not the presence of law. Let me just clarify that. God has given man plenty of laws to follow, even under The umbrella of grace. Okay? Furthermore, legalism is not simply the imposition of law upon others. There is a biblical warrant for parents and governments and churches to impose laws upon others in specific areas. Right? What then is legalism? Well, legalism is a wrong attitude and motivation toward the code of laws under which a person lives. It is conforming to a code for the purpose of exalting self. That's what legalism is at bottom. Someone described it this way. Legalism is just enough religion to keep you, but not enough to nourish you. It's rigid. It's uniform. It's mechanical. And it's not from God. Legalism doesn't need God. Legalism is a search for innocence, not forgiveness. It's a systematic process of defending self, explaining self, exalting self, and justifying self. Legalists are obsessed with self, not God. Legalism turns my opinion into your burden, my opinion into your boundary, my opinion into your obligation. That's what legalism is. Legalism is diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. you got to know that. For people who have personally embraced the true gospel of Jesus Christ, who have placed their trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and have believed that they in no way could merit or sustain their salvation, to turn and migrate toward a message that teaches just the opposite is absolutely inconceivable, isn't it? Yet that's what this Galatian church was in danger of doing due to the false teaching of legalism. And that's exactly what many are still doing today. And we ought to be agitated about that. We also ought to be aware of how that happens. That's the second thing I want you to see in this text. We ought to be appalled at the deception caused by legalism. Verse 7, the second part of the verse. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul addresses two constants here that characterize these false teachers. Number one, their determination is to disturb the church. Look at it. It just says it right there. There are some who are disturbing you. Perpetrators of a false gospel teaching or false teaching like legalism throw people into total confusion. And the word means to shake back and forth. It indicates an unsettled state of mind, and that's what false teachers of legalism do. They intimidate, they confuse, they disquiet, they disturb the church. They are troublers, the Bible says. Chuck Swindoll calls them grace killers. We've all known someone in this category, probably. If you haven't encountered a grace killer yet, you're either a brand new believer or you're just plain blessed. Okay? The problem has plagued the church since it began. I remember when I first got saved. I encountered him, it was very shortly after. It just blew me away. In 1963, Lewis Johnson wrote in an article entitled The Paralysis of Legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. In every day, it is the the same thing. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless professions. The truth is betrayed and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. That was written back in 1963. Legalists disturb the church. As John Stott wrote, the church's greatest troublemakers are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who want to change the gospel. And change it is precisely what Paul says they desire to do. Their determination is to disturb the church and secondly their desire is to distort the truth. Again in verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Heavy word here literally means to turn about that word distort not just twist it a little, but thoroughly distort it. The desire of these false teachers was to so alter and transform the gospel of grace that it would literally be the inverse of what it actually was. That salvation is not something freely given, but something you work your tail off to merit. False teachers were not and are not interested in creating a mere rabbit trail or a tangent to the faith, by the way. They desire complete transformation. You gotta know that. That's what Paul says here. Legalism and grace are systems which have nothing in common. Nothing in common. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. "But, But if it is by grace, writes Paul, it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace also couched in similar language the spirit behind each system is inherently contrary to the other one exalts god the other one exalts self you're not know, going to believe this story when i when i read it to you i had I had to read it twice when I first encountered it, but I couldn't believe my eyes, what I was reading. But it classically illustrates how grace can be destroyed by the distorted gospel of legalism. The author of the book writes this. He said, several months ago, I was conversing with a man I greatly admire. He's a Christian leader in a position that carries with it heavy and extensive responsibilities. He said he was grieved on behalf of a missionary family that he and his wife had known for years. And the legalism that they had encountered again and again on the mission field from fellow missionaries was so petty, so unbelievably small-minded that they actually, they had returned to the States and no longer planned to remain in their career as missionaries. He said it was over a jar of peanut butter I thought he was joking, the author says, to which he responded, no, it's no joke at all. I could hardly believe their story. The particular place that they were sent to serve the Lord did not have access to peanut butter. This particular family happened to enjoy peanut butter a great deal. Rather creatively, they made arrangements with some friends, some of their friends in the States to send them peanut butter every every now and then so that they could enjoy it with their meals. The problem was, however, is that they didn't know until they started receiving the supply of peanut butter that all the other missionaries considered it a mark of spirituality that you not have peanut butter with your meals. So I suppose the line went something like this, quote, we believe since we can't get peanut butter here that we should give it up for the cause of Christ or some such nonsense. A basis of spirituality was bearing the cross of living without peanut butter. Don't laugh. We do similar things. The young family didn't buy into that line of thinking. Now, if you decide you want to do that for yourself, that's great. But you can't say that everybody else has to do it. Young family didn't buy it. So they kept getting their regular shipments of peanut butter and enjoying it. They didn't flaunt it. They just enjoyed it in the privacy of their own home. And then the pressure began to intensify. You would expect adult missionaries to be big enough to let others eat what they please, right? Wrong. The legalism was so petty The pressure got so intense and the exclusive treatment became so unfair, it finished them off spiritually. They finally had enough and unable to continue against the mounting pressure, they packed it in and they were soon homeward bound, disillusioned, probably a bit cynical. What we have here is a classic modern day example of a group of squinty-eyed legalists spying out and attacking someone else's liberty in Christ. So not even missionaries are exempted from this. So I think Paul is really kind of showing us that we ought to be appalled at the deception caused by legalism Paul puts his finger right on the crux of the issue as he counsels in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Third thing that Paul brings out here, verses 8 and 9, is that we ought to be aware of the destruction warranted by legalism. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, how often in the Bible do you read a verse repeated almost word for word, right afterwards, like one right after the other. You don't see that very often. If you see it, you think that the author means business, right? By the way, who's the author? The Holy Spirit, right? That moved Paul to repeat this twice. Vance Havner said this, he said, somehow the idea has gotten around that it is unchristian to take a stand against heresy, some of us need to read the New Testament again. Or at least this verse. Paul doesn't mince his words. Paul says, if anyone, ourselves included, notice he includes himself in this. Ourselves included, or an angel from heaven, should ever preach a gospel contrary to something that goes beyond what we've preached, something different than what you received. Let Him be damned. That's exactly what it says. That word accursed, it means damnation. Does that terminology bother you? That's exactly what it says in the original language. The word was used in the Septuagint of persons or things devoted to destruction. That's serious business. Paul's not impartial about his pronouncement either. He even includes himself in the matter, as I said. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary. If we're uneasy about Paul's words, it's because of how little we understand and appreciate God's grace, isn't it? And how apathetic we are concerning the advancement of the biblical truth. He wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade. Paul used strong language here because he had strong feelings about the truth of the gospel. Do you? Do you get that hot when you encounter false teaching? We should. I went to a church a few weeks ago, visited a church. The pastor started preaching. Luckily, I was up in the balcony. pastor started preaching, and he made some statements that were just, in, in, my, from, in my estimation, were totally not biblical. And I, I looked at my wife, and I said, that is so wrong. <laughs> She's like, quiet <"Clight> down. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, we should get agitated with this stuff. I, I'm gonna be blunt with you. Anyone or any church, even Christian in name, that teaches you a, that you need a certain kind of Bible, you need to, you need to speak in tongues, or you need to tie a certain amount of your income, or you must unconditionally obey your pastor, or you must attend every church meeting, or you must win a certain number of converts to Christ in your lifetime, or any other host of things as requirements for your salvation, is teaching a false gospel. Paul has definitive, heavyweight words here. He says, let them be anathema. In other words, let them be left to God's judgment. Paul wanted these Galatians to evaluate their teachers, regardless of the source, human or angelic. The bottom line is that any attempt to alter the true gospel is culpable and will be condemned in no uncertain terms. Now, I need to make this disclaimer. Some people are perpetrating a false gospel, and they don't really even know that they're doing it. They need to be come alongside of and brought into the truth. But then there are a whole host of other people that are doing it intentionally to subvert the true gospel in the church, to disturb and distort. So the fact is, the slightest addition to the gospel of grace, in effect, says that Christ's finished work on the cross wasn't enough. It's not sufficient. It trivializes Christ's sacrifice and treats it as worthless. That's that's unacceptable. As if we could add something to our salvation, right? As one man put it, "How, how long will it be before we discover that we cannot dazzle God with our accomplishments? Christ's grace is all sufficient. I can do nothing. Would you repeat that with me? Christ's grace is all sufficient. I can do nothing. Do you believe it? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Verse 10 I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. This is serious business with Paul as he addressed the Galatians. So when Paul announces the truth about God's judgment upon all those who distort the true gospel, his words are consistent with Christ's. I just want want you to know that. Just show you a couple of verses in Matthew Chapter 18 and verse 7, Jesus says, and he's talking to the Pharisees, right? Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. That's serious business. And then in Matthew 23 and verse 15, right in the middle of his pronouncing woes, the eight woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. He says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You see, when Paul says, let that person be anathema, he's just just basically Agreeing with Christ's words that these are, this is serious business to distort the gospel. It's no light thing, nor is it a popular thing. But Paul is not concerned about being popular, right? He doesn't care if people like him or not. And we, neither should we be concerned about being popular. We should be concerned about being truthful. So number four here, as we wrap it up, we ought to be adamant about our disposition in the face of legalism. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul would yield on many, many things in his attempt to win others for Christ. He gave up his own rights, his own personal liberties in Christ. He even once declared that if it were possible, he would gladly give up his own salvation for the sake of his fellow Jews. That's pretty much dedication, isn't it? Compassion on people. But Paul made personal concessions for the sake of the gospel, but there is one thing that he would never compromise on, the truth. He was not driven by the applause of men but by the approval of God. His accusers were spreading the message that Paul's message of grace was simply to gain popularity for himself. It was a cheap message. It was too easy. Grace was too easy, but Paul remarks, if I was interested in being a people pleaser, would I use such harsh language against false teachers? That's what he says in verse 10. There will always be opposition to the true message of grace. People will always misunderstand it. They will always exploit it. They will always misinterpret it. But to preach any other message other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, and for God's glory alone, is to alter the truth. Those are the five solas that define Protestantism by the way, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for God's glory alone. And that is a line that Paul would not cross to alter that. As one uh, pastor once said, yes, grace that is presented in all its charm and beauty is risky. No question about it. It brings grace abusers and grace killers out from under the rocks, and I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. I remember a day early on in the ministry here, as a young pastor, I had someone from another church who had been a Christian for less than a year sitting in my office questioning the genuineness of my faith because I didn't teach exclusively from a certain Bible translation. He then questioned the church's devotion because we did not engage in the same method of evangelism that his church did. Three weeks later, my wife had a couple of Jehovah Witnesses trying to muscle their way into our home. They literally stuck their foot in the door when she tried to close the door. With their grace-killing false gospel, on and on it goes. I could tell you stories. Listen, my job as a pastor teacher is to warn you. It's to protect you from the wolves. They're here. Be careful of the false message. They claim to be Christians. Some of them may not be. They claim to have the truth. They don't. Any gospel that goes beyond the New Testament teaching of grace is a false gospel. Plain and simple. Any promoter of that message is a false teacher. And according to Paul, it's under God's judgment. That's what it says right here in Galatians 1. I'm changing my view on engaging these people that come to your door and knock on your door and want to propagate this stuff. Don't let them in. Don't invite them into your home to argue or discuss what they believe in hopes of converting them. Because you will be on the defensive. If you want to evangelize them, go to where they live. You be the peer pressure. Nowhere does the Bible ever invite us to call on the wolves. It's just not there. Paul warned us to be prepared for them, but he never said invite them into your home. You need boundaries. He said to avoid them in 2 Timothy 3 and in 2 John 7 through 11. Avoid them. The words of Jeremiah the weeping prophet are graphically descriptive of our time. I'll leave you with them. We ought to take them very seriously. An appalling thing has happened in the land, he says. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? That's Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31. I want to give you five Practical pieces of advice, a handful right here. This is only going to take me two seconds, okay? Number one, this is going to help you as you encounter grace killers. Number one, examine your faith. First Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Number two, evaluate your teachers by the Bible. Matthew 7, 15 and following. Number three, embrace your Bible. Know it. Number four, expect opposition because you're going to get it. Both from within the church and without. And number five, exist to please God. Exist to please God. Don't compromise the truth for popularity. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. My friends, beware of tainted milk. All around us, people are substituting the poisonous salt of legalism for the sweet, nourishing message of grace. We ought to be agitated by the defection it's causing. We ought to be appalled by the deception it creates. We, ought to, we need to be aware of the damnation that it warrants. And finally, we need to be adamant in our disposition toward it because when the gospel is distorted, grace is destroyed. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, a very, very heavy and pointed message, Lord, uh, that Paul has given to these Galatians, but really, ultimately, he's given it all to us. You've preserved these words for us to take heed that we might walk in the grace that you have showed us and given to us by a gift of your hand. Thank you for this word of truth. May we accurately divide it when we read it and we take it in and when we teach it. And I pray, Almighty Father, that in all things that we would honor and glorify you in every way. Keep us by your grace, Lord. And may we recognize that it's by your spirit that we are saved, by grace, through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. For Jesus' sake, I pray, and in his name, amen.